gather with us this morning. I see some faces that are familiar to me that have visited in the past, some that I, I don't know, and some of you I've gotten to speak to, some I haven't and I hope to get to later. But if you're here visiting with us, uh, whether you have some sort of past association with this congregation or whether you're just a, a friend or a family member who's come here to, to celebrate this day with us, you're, you're most welcome. And whether you are a visitor or you're one of our members, I hope that the time we spend here together today for all of us will be strengthening and uplifting and God will be pleased for the time we spend here together in worship. I was thinking about what I was going to speak on today and I was trying to think of a title for our lesson this morning. I already knew what I was going to talk about, but I'm not always that creative when it comes to titling things. That's not the way that my brain works. And then the title was unwittingly supplied to me Wednesday night by a conversation I overheard between Patricia Payton and Don Taylor. They were talking about homecoming, and Patricia said that uh, she hoped it would be a good day. And he said, no, it's going to be a good day. And I said, that's it, a good day. And I took that, and I actually made it a little bit better, a great day. Hopefully, that describes our time here together this morning. And it also, I think, describes what is, in some ways, a similar circumstance that we find in the 10th chapter of Acts. That's the text we want to spend our time looking at together this morning. In Acts chapter 10, we're introduced to a certain Cornelius. Cornelius is a centurion in the Roman army stationed in the city of Caesarea. He's a good man. He believes in God along with all of his household. He gives alms to the poor. He continually prays to God. And one day he gets a vision. An angel speaks to him and he says, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer. You need to send to Joppa for a man named Simon Peter. He's going to tell you what God would have you know. Cornelius complies with that vision. And in the course of time, Peter arrives. He comes to the household of Cornelius. And when he arrived, he found in verse 24 that Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and his close friends. Cornelius had called together his relatives and his friends to hear this message that Peter brought. And in a sense, I think you could say that this was a sort of homecoming, gathering there in Cornelius' house. And the account that follows indicates that this was an extremely successful event. The gospel was preached to the Gentiles for the first time. They received that word in faith. They were baptized. They were added to God's people. But unfortunately, not all of our assemblies are nearly as successful as this one was. In fact, I'm afraid that more often than not, we leave out of here on a Sunday morning somewhat dissatisfied in one way or another with what took place. We certainly don't have the fulfilling experience that the friends and the family of Cornelius had on that day. 
And I think it's, it's tragic that what should be a source of spiritual life and vitality and nourishment for us is so often something that's just an apathetic exercise and routine. Or maybe even worse than that, it's a net negative. But the good news is those in Cornelius' household don't have any sort of special rights to this sort of powerful assembly. It's not an experience that's just limited to them. We could experience it too. We could have that same sort of assembly here in this church building just the way they did in that home of Cornelius. It belongs in the 21st century just as much as it did back in the 1st century. Everything that was available to them is available to us this morning. And we have every bit as great a need for it. So we want to spend just a few minutes asking this morning and trying to answer the question, what was the secret of this successful assembly? And how can we learn from that and how can we employ it not only today, in our homecoming Sunday, but each and every time we gather together with God's people, whether you're gathering here or whether it's in some other place. So the first thing to note by way of answering this question is that the congregation made its contribution. All too often, I think we conceive of attending the worship of the church something like going to a play. We view it as a performance piece, a spectator sport. Everybody out there is just sort of sitting passively, taking everything in, and the ones who are up here at the front are the ones actually doing something. So we think that the success of an assembly depends entirely upon the preacher or upon the song leader or upon those who are leading public prayers. Now, obviously, those who are taking those leadership roles have a very important part to play. Brother Taylor came by the office Friday, and he asked if I had my sermon ready. He was joking with me, but I said, if I didn't have my sermon ready on Sunday, you would know it. It wouldn't take any time. It would be obvious to all that I hadn't prepared anything. And so if I hadn't put any thought, any time into this, well, then I wouldn't be doing my part to contribute. Danny did a great job leading singing today. He always does. We're thankful to have him to be able to do that. And I know those who lead prayer put some Uh, time and forethought into those things that they're going to say so that's very important but all of us the church as a whole plays an extremely important role in the assembly it depends on the church as a whole so what is it that distinguished the congregation that was gathered there in Cornelius's house that day well first of all it was a present congregation if you look there in verse number 33 It says, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God. Maybe this goes without saying, but their presence was a necessary condition of success. They had to be there for the assembly to take place. And in a similar way, I'm thankful for the presence of each and every person who's here this morning. But I'm convinced that All of us need to have a greater awareness to take more seriously this privilege that we have to assemble 
as God's people and to worship him. For one thing, if we want to emulate Jesus, we should remember that Jesus regularly assembled with God's people to worship. I think of Luke chapter 4 and verse number 16 where it says that there in his hometown of Nazareth, he went on the Sabbath into the synagogue, as was his custom. In other words, this was routine. This is just part of what he did on a weekly basis. And they knew him well there because they asked him to read something that was not open to everyone. Why did Jesus do that? Well, it wasn't because it was required. Synagogue isn't mentioned at all in the Old Testament. This wasn't a matter of the law. It was probably partly because, as he says at his baptism, he wanted to fulfill all righteousness. This is setting a good example. It's probably because of the need he personally felt to come into God's presence. But I'm sure it was also for the benefit of his fellow Jews who went to the synagogue also. And that brings us to a point that I think we often miss when it comes to attending the assembly. There's a great benefit in this for all of us, for our brothers and our sisters. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25, that's a passage that probably a lot of us here this morning are already familiar with, and it's usually boiled down to this simple, straightforward command, don't forsake the assembly, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another so much the more as you see the day approaching, as the, the King James says. Well, that don't forsake the assembly might be a good message in and of itself, but that's not actually what the text says. And it really misses the greater point that's trying to be made here. The larger context in Hebrews chapter 10 has to do here with the confidence that we can have because we're in Christ. And as part of that, the immediate point, one example of that, verse number 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, this command isn't individual, don't skip the assembly. It's to the community. Don't neglect meeting together. You need to keep coming together. And what's the point of that meeting together? to promote love and good works, to encourage, to build one another up. You see, the fault in missing the assembly is not that you don't check off my went-to-church box this week. It's that we neglect that wonderful opportunity we have to encourage each other to go out and to live like Jesus would have us to live, to try to build one another up and to stir up these good works in each other. So when we're not here, we're robbing our brothers and sisters of the benefit of that encouragement. And not only that, we're cheating ourselves of that wonderful blessing we have of being encouraged and having those good works promoted in us. Generally speaking, those who attend the assembly are involved in the work of the church. They're involved in acts of service. They're involved in the lives of their fellow members. They help the community. We're proclaiming very visibly our faith that we shall not live by bread alone. Conversely, when we skip out on that, when we're not taking part of it, when we deliberately absent ourselves from the assembly, we, 
we weaken the church. We say very publicly, very visibly that eh, this just really isn't that important. It's not a priority for us. We look around at our world and a number of organizations, the, the Masons, the Elks, civic clubs like the Rotary, the Lions Club, others, all of them are declining in membership compared to where they were decades ago. Why is that? It's because people no longer view them as important or worthwhile. Now, I know the church is a really different type of organization, but when we absent ourselves, we're effectively saying the same thing. This really isn't important. This really isn't worthwhile. The life and the vitality of a church, generally speaking, can be gauged by the zeal with which its own members attend services. That's a good indicator of the effect we're going to have in our community, the effect we're going to have in our world. All that's necessary to destroy a church is for the members to just let it alone. The rest will take care of itself. So first of all, they were present, but not only was it a present congregation, it was a reverent congregation. In verse number 33, to return to that, it says, therefore we are all here in the presence of God. So you see, the assembly isn't only horizontal, it's not only about the relationships we have with each other, it's also vertical. We're coming here into the presence of God. See, reverence isn't a virtue that we can just pick up and then take off whenever it suits us without it making any sort of difference in our lives. I think about Jesus when the disciples came and asked him to teach them to pray. In that model prayer, the very first petition has to do with revering God. Before we get to things like daily bread, before we get to God's will being done, before we get even to forgiving us of our sins, the very first thing, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May your name be kept holy. May your name be revered. And I think we can think of reverence, much like in that prayer, as a sort of entryway. If we don't have any reverence for the truth, then we're probably not going to value the truth very highly. If we don't have any reverence for righteousness, we're probably not going to be righteous in our lives. If we have no reverence for God, then we're probably not going to find God. And now maybe we're thinking, well, that all sounds really good, reverence, but that's one of those words that we don't typically use. So what does it mean when it says that they were reverent? Well, if we were to try to define reverence specifically, I think that we'd probably get several different definitions. Some people think of reverence almost exclusively as solemnity. So that is when we're in God's house, we need to be very grim, very serious. I think of all of those paintings I've seen of the Puritans and they all look like they've just eaten a sour pickle or something, you know, like this. Some people think of reverence that way. But solemnity doesn't necessarily go hand in hand with reverence. It's certainly not a guarantee of it. In fact, Someone uh, and I were talking, I think it was last week after services, about the fact that there's actually a lot of humor in Scripture if you go and you look for it. God gave us a sense of humor. That's, that's a gift. Some of the things Jesus says, we're so used to reading them proverbially, they're actually really funny if you try to put yourself back in that first century. When he says, 
about the Pharisees that they strain out a gnat and they swallow a camel? We're so used to hearing that, we don't realize that's funny when he says that in context. So reverence can go hand in hand with a sunny disposition. I know that because I see it here on a week-by-week basis. No, reverence isn't about that gloom or gladness. Reverence is fundamentally about the awareness that we've come into the presence of God. Now that, to me, is something that should cause us joy. We should be glad on account of that. But the natural response of someone who's reverent, whether solemn or whether joyous, is surely God is here in this place. Finally, this congregation contributed to the service because it was expectant. Those friends and family were gathered there in Cornelius' house that day. They didn't come with bored, listless indifference. They didn't just come to his house out of a sense of obligation or because they had to go to church like the old time to make the donuts commercial. It wasn't one of those things that they just did out of routine. They came with excitement. They came with a sense of expectation. They came convinced that something wonderful was going to happen there that day, something tremendously significant. I I think of it, I think of it like kids on Christmas morning. If you remember back to when you were a child or seeing your own children and they're there and they wake up and they go see what's in the stocking or they see what's under the tree, why were they so expectant? They were expectant because they were excited about this word that Peter was going to bring them. It's not because of Peter's reputation as a scholar or an orator or anything like that, and and thank goodness for that. They're excited because of the message that he had, because of the Lord he proclaimed. Cornelius, along with some of his family, his friends, they'd been praying to God for light, for leading from him, and they were convinced that Peter was bringing them the answer to their prayers. They came because they wanted to hear the word of the Lord. And that brings us to the second player who made his contribution to this assembly. Just like the congregation made their contribution, the preacher made his contribution too. I think it's interesting to note here just how highly Cornelius regards Peter in terms of what he thinks of him, in terms of what he expects from him. And I think maybe there's a lesson here for preachers. Uh, People want to think well of you. So if they don't think so much of you, well, then maybe my fault may not be so much their fault. But you listen to the words of Cornelius. Now, therefore, we're all here in the presence of God. Why? To hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. In effect, he says, Peter, we know that you're God's man We know that you're here under divine orders. We know that the message that you're bringing is the word of God. You could attach, thus saith the Lord, right in front of it. So we want to know what God has to say. Now that's a tremendous blessing, a great privilege that Peter has to be able to speak the word of the Lord here. And that should be something that fills him with joy. It's no wonder that sometimes when we read Paul's letters, we see him just overflowing with this sense of joy that he has for this blessing. Uh, For instance, in one case, to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. What a great blessing 
to have this opportunity to be able to speak the word of the Lord. But that also carries with it a terrible responsibility to communicate that word, that message, faithfully. And sometimes the preacher fails in that. Ralph Waldo Emerson, great American poet, author, man of letters, he graduated from Harvard Divinity School. I don't know if you knew that or not, but on one occasion he went back and he gave an address there, and he talks about an occasion. I'm going to read some of his remarks to you. I once heard a preacher who sorely tempted me to say I would go to church no more. Men go, thought I, where they're wont to go. Else had no soul entered into the temple that afternoon. A snowstorm was falling around us. The snowstorm was real. The preacher merely spectral. And the eye felt the sad contrast in looking at him and then out of the window behind him into the beautiful meteor of the snow. He had lived in vain. He had not one word intimating that he had laughed or wept, was married or in love, had been commended or cheated or chagrined. If he had ever lived and acted, we were none the wiser for it. The capital secret of his profession, namely to convert life into truth, he had not learned. Ouch. I have no doubt that at times I've failed to live up to my end of the bargain in converting life into truth. I haven't done the job that I want to do, that I should do, that God's called me to do, to contribute to the success of the assembly. But on the other hand, another author, Robert Louis Stevenson, we find this note in one of his diaries. I've been to church today, and I'm not depressed. And there are a lot of ways you can take that. <laughs> um, unfortunately, maybe that was the normal way that he felt after going to church. But if you know anything about Stevenson, he was chronically ill throughout his life. He was frequently melancholy. And his whole point here is that he went to church, and for a time, that lifted the burden off of him. Something probably that the preacher said stirred his soul when he needed it most. He did his job on that particular occasion. And it's with that in mind, in that manner, that Peter preached to that expectant audience in Cornelius' household. I'm going to read his sermon at length here, beginning in verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we're witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. 
To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And finally, in light of that sermon, we have our third player. God made his contribution. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. When these people, the expectant congregation on the one hand, the faithful minister on the other hand, when they came together prayerfully, faithfully, God didn't disappoint them. God was there. God showed up in their midst. When they assembled, he was present. You know, what we find throughout all of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, it doesn't matter, our Lord never lets us down. His faithfulness, his keeping of his promises, the fact that he does what he says he's going to do, that's something we find over and over and over again from the covenant he established with Abraham by faith. Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised, Hebrews 11.11. 11. To the covenant he established with Israel, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him, and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 9. To the covenant he makes with those in Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of, this, of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 9. God is faithful. That is the constant refrain of scripture to everyone who is in a covenant relationship with him. So to all those who were gathered in Cornelius' house that day, he made himself known so that they left that assembly, they left that place, and they went out and they unleashed this life, this power, this message of God onto the world. And what I'm suggesting is that that can be our experience too. Our Lord is always more eager to give than we are to receive. He's eager to give us above and beyond what it is that we'll take. He wants to work in us and through us so far beyond what we can imagine if we'll only let him. Great tragedy is that we allow him to do so little when he wants to do so much. So when I sit out to the church building on a Sunday morning, I can be sure of the presence of the congregation. I don't know exactly who's going to be here, and I don't know how many are going to be here, but I know that the church is going to assemble. And by the same token, the church can be sure of the preacher's attendance. I'm going to be here. I haven't called in sick on Sunday morning, at least not yet. The church is going to be here. The preacher is going to be here, whether he's capable of preaching like Peter or not. But are we as certain of the presence of God here in our midst. If we are, it'll be a successful assembly. It will be a great day. If we are, we'll be renewed in spirit and we can go out and we can bear witness to the power of God in the world.
My prayer this morning is that we will all experience an assembly like that of the household of Cornelius, that we've all gathered here this morning willingly, eagerly, expectantly, that the message that's been brought has been the word of the Lord, and that above all else, we can leave here saying that we've gathered together in the presence of God this morning. But I don't know the spiritual state of everyone who's here today, so I can't think of any better way to close this message than with the great theme of Peter's sermon here, the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, the words that Cornelius was told, you and your household will be saved by. As you go down through it here, Jesus of Nazareth, anointed by God with the Holy Spirit, went about doing good, went about doing mighty works. He was put to death on the cross. But God raised him up and made him both Lord and Christ. And he's going to judge all of humanity. But now the great promise is that forgiveness of sins has been offered in his name to those who place their faith in him and those who respond like on that day in penitent faith and baptism. So if you haven't responded to the gospel like that, I want to urge you, don't wait. Do it today. Maybe you're here this morning and you already are a Christian, but you've just been going through the motions. You've been assembling with the church out of a sense of obligation. You've been going out of this place, whether it's this church or whether it's a different home congregation, you've been going out without a sense of the power of God in your life, without a sense of your mission in the world. I don't want you to go out of here that way today. I urge you to remember your first love just like those in the household of Cornelius. And whoever you are and whatever your need may be, if you need to make changes in your life today, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing. Love wilt thou roam farther and farther away. Call.